Oscar season is upon us once again, but where did this award ceremony come from, and how has it changed over the last nine decades? That's ahead this week on Footnoting History. Hello, 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 and welcome to Footnoting History. My name is Nathan. And I'm Esther. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about a topic of great interest to both of us. And it's such a big interest of mine that I just want you to all know that I've been watching the Academy Awards since probably 1991. So I'm a huge fan. Uh, well, before we get started with uh, sort of the the main body of history of the Academy Awards, uh, a minor caveat. Uh, while we're going to be talking about a lot of details from Academy history, uh, this is mostly going to be an overview. Uh, there are entire books about the history of the Oscars, and if you want more details and trivia, we'll have links on our website to those books if you, if you would like to check them out. Uh, also, the Academy Awards follow a numbering tradition that can be a little confusing. Uh, This year's awards are the 86th Annual Academy Awards, but they're also known as the 2013 Academy Awards, even though the ceremony is taking place in 2014, uh, because it's for movies that are released in the 2013 calendar year. Uh, I'm sorry if this is confusing. We don't make the conventions, uh, so just bear with us. So with that out of the way, uh, the history of the Academy Awards rather obviously begins with the history of the Academy. In the 1920s, the American film industry was booming. And although it was only a few decades old, uh, the medium of film had become a massively popular form of entertainment and enormously lucrative for the studios that produced the moving pictures or movies. Some of these studios still exist today, including Paramount, Warner Brothers, and Universal, and most importantly for us, the firm of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, or MGM. MGM was the result of the merger of three film companies, the titular Metro, Goldwyn, and Mayer, after they were bought out by Marcus Lowe, owner of the Lowe's Movie Theater franchise, which still exists today. Back in the early days of Hollywood, many film studios also owned the theaters in which their films played, which gave rise to accusations of monopoly, as the studio owned both the means of producing the films as well as the venue of their distribution. They would eventually be forced to separate in 1948 as a result of a Supreme Court decision in U.S. versus Paramount. Even though Lowe owned the company, their California studio was headed by one of the most powerful producers in Hollywood history, Louis B. Mayer. Uh, Mayer had owned his own production company before being bought out by Lowe. He is the mayor in Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. He would oversee MGM's golden age from the late 20s until the 1940s. He's eventually forced to retire in 1951, and he would make the studio into a powerhouse of film production. Concerned with preserving the interest of Hollywood against the rising movements of unionization, in 1927, Mayer spearheaded the creation of the International Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, uh, soon shortened to just the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which he basically created by throwing a party. His 36 guests at a banquet held in LA's Ambassador Hotel on the 11th of January 1927 became the founding members of the Academy, and within six months, the membership had grown to several hundred, uh, mostly by throwing parties for big names in the industry and inviting them to join, uh, provided that they paid the hefty $100 membership fee. At the time, the Academy had only five branches, production, direction, writing, acting, and technical, which was a catch-all for the practical working side of the movie-making process, uh, everything from costumes and makeup to set design, um, visual effects, and editing. 
Today, the Academy has 16 different branches, many of which have come from the breakup of the technical category into more specific subdivisions. While the Academy was initially conceived of as a labor relations forum and to promote the interest in technologies of the film industry, one of its charter goals was to award recognition for achievement and merit in filmmaking. Let's talk about this uh, first Academy Awards uh, ceremony, which is not like anything that we see today on uh, NBC or CBS or ABC. I don't know who who airs the Academy. Uh, ABC has days. the contract. ABC has had the contract right since the '90s, and they have it until like 2025, 2026, I think. All right. So the first Academy Awards, it was held on May 16, 1929, in the Blossom Room of the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel. Overseeing these proceedings was the president of the Academy, heartthrob action star Douglas Fairbanks. In addition to being one of the leading men of his day, Fairbanks was deeply involved in the production side of making movies. A decade earlier, he had banded together with his soon-to-be wife, Mary Pickford, uh, the immensely popular Charlie Chaplin, and the director, uh, D.W. Griffith, uh, as you know, uh, he is the infamous director of Birth of a Nation, to create their own production company called United Artists. Thus, uh, Fairbanks seemed to be a very natural pick as the figurehead of this new organization. The first Academy Awards were almost nothing like the ceremony you see broadcast on television today. If anything, they bore more resemblance to the Golden Globes because it was a much smaller affair attended by only a few hundred people. And of course, everyone uh, was treated to a lavish dinner. At the Globes, I don't think they're given dinner. They're given a lot of wine, but definitely not dinner. Uh, followed by several hours of dancing. The actual handing out of the awards did not take very long, nor was it in any way very suspenseful. The award eligibility period for this ceremony stretched from August 1st, 1927 to July 31st, 1928. And the ceremony was already being held some nine and a half months later. Today, of course, the Academy season follows the calendar year, uh, more or less. A movie may have a much smaller, limited release before the end of December in order to qualify for the award, before having a wide release several weeks or even months later. But with the exception of foreign language films, as long as the film opens in Los Angeles, California, and has a run of seven consecutive days before midnight on December 31st, it will qualify. But for the first six years of its existence, the Academy Award eligibility season stretched from August to July across two calendar years. So people were sometimes receiving awards and nominations for movies that had come out nearly two years before. In terms of the actual mechanics of voting, the ability to nominate someone for an award was open to all Academy members. A committee in that category whittled the nominations in each Academy branch down. These final nominations were then passed on to yet another five-man committee made up of one representative drawn from each of the branches of the Academy, and it was this board of judges that decided the winner. As I said, there was no suspense involved in these awards because the decisions of the committee had been announced three months prior to the ceremony, so everyone who showed up already knew that, that they were going to win or knew that they were not going to win. In fact, Two of the Oscars, the Best Actor for Emil Yannings and the Best Picture Award, which went to Paramount's uh, Wings, it's a World War I movie, had already been handed out. That said, no one walked away empty-handed, because while the winners got a statuette, runners-up that first year were given a scroll. However, this is the only year 
that the year of the magical scroll, which I'm calling it, <laughs> happens. Neurotic. Yeah, I feel like it's one of those certificates that you would get in high school that's like, yeah. you know, second best Spanish student. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems, it seems like a terrible concession prize. <laughs> Uh, speaking of the statuette, uh, which was awarded to the winners, uh, it's one of the few aspects of the Academy Awards that hasn't changed much in its 85-year history. Uh, the, really, the only thing that's changed is the size of the base. In case you've never actually looked that closely at it, the statue is made of an uh, alloy of tin, antimony, and copper known as Britannium, uh, covered in gold. The original statues were made of gold-plated bronze, but eventually they transitioned to this uh, tin, copper, antimony um, uh, alloy. And it features a nude man holding a sword on top of a five-spoked film reel, one for each of the original five branches of the Academy. It was designed by Cedric Gibbons, who worked as an art director at MGM, and he would serve in that capacity on some of the studio's most famous films, including Gaslight, The Wizard of Oz, Brigadoon, and The Bridge of San Luis Rey, for which he won Best Art Direction at the second Oscars in 1930, and was presented with the very statue that he himself had designed. Eventually, the statue was given the nickname Oscar. Uh, no one knows exactly how this happens. Uh, some sources will attribute it to Betty Davis, saying it looked like her husband, others to the Academy's librarian, Margaret Herrick, uh, who said it looked like her uncle Oscar, and still others to the Hollywood journalist, Sidney Skolsky. But no one actually knows. I, I must say that the, um, I, think the, I think the more popular urban uh, legend of this is uh, the Margaret Herrick one, who said that yeah, it that's like the one. That, like that's the one that's on the official um, Academy website. Uh, is that she said it looked like her uncle? Within the first five or six years of the award, though, uh, the name gets attached to the statuette and to the ceremony. The number of categories that first year was very small. Only twelve awards are given out, which is half as many as are handed out today. So, what was different? For starters, there were no supporting actor or actress categories. Only best actor and best actress. Supporting acting was not added as a category until the 1936 Oscars, and even then, winners were not given a statuette, only a plaque. There were, however, two Best Picture awards at the first Oscars, one for production, which was won by Wings, which is, again, a World War I film, and one for Most Unique and Artistic Picture, won by Sunrise, which is a melodrama about a man who plans to kill his wife so that he can be with another woman, but then he decides he can't go through with it. So most unique category, only around for a year then? Yeah, I mean, it only lasted one year. It was done away with the following year, uh, and they just had the Best Production Award. Likewise, Best Direction was split into two categories, one for comedy and one for drama. This is a distinction which is still preserved today for the Golden Globe ceremony, but which, like most unique and artistic production, uh, was discontinued after the first year. Uh, that said, at this point, the Academy did not yet follow a one-film, one-nomination format, um, and today it still doesn't exactly. You still have categories like uh, Best Song, where a movie can get nominated for multiple, uh, multiple songs. But by and large, the Academy today follows a one-film, one-nomination format. So you had people reaching the final nomination stage where they were nominated for several movies in one category. For example, the Best Actress Award that year went to Janet Gaynor for her performances in three films, Sunrise, uh, Seventh Heaven, and Street Angel. This will be the case for the first three or so years of the award, but after that, people will generally be nominated for a single film. And they, they still have that practice uh, for some uh, film critic societies. Uh, they will, if someone has a very good year, uh, like Benedict Cumberbatch, for example, had a really good year last year, 
mm-hmm. they'll give him like uh, a best supporting award for like the five films that he was in. Right. It's sort of a body of work type. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, critic uh, societies today do that, and uh, and of course the Razzies do that. Right. Of I mean, if yeah. you're if especially if you're Adam Sandler and you have like two awful movies in a year, they make sure that you're recognized for those two awful movies. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know, even in this first year, though, um, the Academy Awards were already well on their way to becoming. Uh, a political event, and and certainly when we think of the memorable moments that have happened throughout the years at the awards, they have usually been politically driven. And we can see this in two special awards given out that year. Uh, The first was a special achievement award given to Warner Brothers uh, for its film The Jazz Singer, which is uh, famous for being the first full-length motion picture to feature synchronous sound, or what we call the first talkie film, although uh, I believe it was only used for one scene. Right. It, it was it was very limited within the film. Yeah, I mean, it was very revolutionary. I, I mean, I would even argue that um, D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, uh, The Jazz Singer, and um, Orson Welles' uh, Citizen Kane, those are kind of the three big films that really move the medium forward. This film, uh, The Jazz Singer, it's, it, it's, all, it's a bit contentious because uh, at the time, because Hollywood was a silent film industry, there was actually a huge opposition within the inter- industry to synchronize sound. Actors uh, who made their living on looks and exaggerated expressiveness in silent films uh, feared that they didn't have the speaking voice that were attractive enough for spoken uh, dialogue. And this was uh, the case, apparently, with Emil Jannings and Bela Lugosi to a certain extent. Of course, it's the subject of the 2011 Academy Award-winning film, The Artist, which is kind of a a play on that genre. The other special award uh, was a kind of merit award given to Charlie Chaplin for his movie, The Circus. The thing is, um, for those of you who even have a cursory knowledge of Chaplin, I, I highly recommend uh, Attenborough's uh, uh, biopic of uh, yes. Charlie Chaplin, starring uh, Robert Downey Jr. The uh, you know it, what we know about Chaplin is that he was enormously popular with audiences, genius filmmaker, obviously, but he had a hugely turbulent private life, to say the least. And in particular, he was just coming off a short-lived marriage to actress Lita Gray. This was Chaplin's second marriage, and by all accounts, it was a shotgun wedding much more than it was a love match. Chaplin also happened to be 35, Gray was only 16, and they got married very quickly and quietly in Mexico when she found herself seven months, or several months rather, uh, pregnant with his child. So uh, this was not a happy marriage, they were divorced just after three years, but all of these personal, personal issues aside, Chaplin was just simply not well-liked within certain quarters of the film industry. And when his name was submitted into to, to three categories, that is writing, directing, and acting, of which he was a genius at all three, he was supposedly removed by the committee and instead given a special Oscar for all three, sometimes seen as a concession prize. And also, I, I, as far as concession prizes go, I would also put the uh, the juvenile uh, Oscars, the, the little tiny Oscars that they gave uh, Shirley Temple and Mickey Rooney, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think there's only so uh, so many of them in existence. They're, they're very highly prized. Uh, there's also, we should mention, a minor urban legend surrounding the first Academy Awards. Namely, that the real winner of the Best Actor Award was not the German actor Emil Jannings, but instead the German Shepherd action star 
Rin Tin Tin. The legend goes that the Academy was ashamed that Rin Tin Tin won and scrubbed his name from the list. There is, however, absolutely no evidence for this, and the whole thing is made up, and I'm sure our fellow podcaster, Christina, will be quite distraught to hear this news. <laughs> uh, with the second Academy Awards held in April 1930 for the films in the 1928-29 eligibility season, things began to change for both the organization of the awards and the ceremony. There were problems because final decisions and winners were still being decided by a board of judges. As with the previous year, the people who won tended to already be Academy members, and so final decisions were notably lopsided. Uh, Particularly scandalous was the fact that Academy founding member Mary Pickford won in the Best Actress category, even though her performance in the movie Coquette had failed to wow the critics. And on top of that, the multiple movie nominations continued, with, for example, Frank Lloyd winning Best Director while being nominated for three movies, The Divine Lady, Weary River, and Drag. Some of these problems, as well as the interminable distance between the eligibility season and the award ceremony, were solved with the third Academy Awards. The ceremony was held in November 1930, just seven months after the second Academy Awards in April, and only four months after the conclusion of the 1929-1930 eligibility season. The Academy also instituted a new voting procedure for these awards, and for the first time, voting was opened to the entire Academy, rather than just the Board of Judges. That said, this ceremony was not without its bumps. For starters, the dinner was followed by what was virtually an hour-long sermon on the morality, or lack thereof, in the film industry by William Hayes, president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America. What a very charming man William Hayes was. Uh, (laughs) Oh, yeah. Hayes was a staunch (laughs) conservative and former chairman of the Republican National Committee. He was also postmaster general. Uh, who had been brought in to head the new organization in 1922 by Hollywood itself. The production companies had been facing increasingly organized opposition from conservative organizations regarding the scandalous and immoral nature of motion pictures, which up to that point hadn't really been bound by any restrictions concerning the material or situations they depicted. For eight years, Hayes had been trying to get the major studios to self-censor, and had finally gotten them to agree, albeit loosely and tentatively and with sort of moderated success, uh, to follow a production code drawn up by two Catholics, Martin Quigley and uh, Father Daniel Lord, who was a Jesuit. The history of Hollywood censorship and the Hayes Code, as it was colloquially called, is going to be the subject of one of my episodes later this year, so I won't go into too much detail here, but suffice it to say, when Hayes got up to talk to the Academy for an hour about morality in movies, it was as a man triumphant. Lengthy speeches were also a feature the following year, at the 4th Academy Awards in November 1931, when the longest speech in Academy history was given by the Guest of Honor, United States Vice President Charles Curtis, who talked for nearly two hours, pushing back the actual giving out of awards until very late in the evening. In fact, uh, I read one place that they were pushed back till after midnight. Can you imagine being in that audience, listening to that guy drone on... (laughs) And he was talking about, uh, his speech was about the importance of, like, the, the influence of the film industry. Like, how, how important it was that the film industry recognized how influential it was in American culture. And, I mean, Curtis was right, but two hours. <laughs> no, it must have seemed interminable. But he's the vice president of the United States. Like, out of respect for the office, you can't be like, Mr. President, let's play the president off, right? <laughs> Start the music. <laughs> You, you can't go get the cane, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
You know, still, uh, despite the Academy's uh, new and more democratic voting process, um, things were still not really entirely smooth in these uh, first couple years or so. There were still murmurings of scandal and vote rigging, uh, especially when actress Norma Shearer, who was married to MGM's head of production, Irving Thalberg, won for her performance in The Divorcee, a movie that most certainly did not conform to the Hayes Code. Uh, rather than Greta Garbo's uh, much more popular and acclaimed performance in the movie, Anna Christie. And um, I should actually list Greta Garbo as one of uh, the famous snubs uh, in Oscar history, uh, especially for her wonderful film, Queen Christina. But in 1932, uh, so these are, to be clear, the 1931 Oscars, there was some minor controversy when Frederick March and Wallace Berry tied for Best Actor because a tie was declared when two nominees were within three votes of one another. Berry was reportedly very upset about this fact as he had considered himself the frontrunner. Then, at the 1932-33 Oscars, host Will Rogers caused a bit of a stir when he announced a winner of Best Director by saying, Come on up and get it, Frank. Um, and thinking that he had won for his movie Lady for a Day, Frank Capra, who is most famous for It's a Wonderful Life, uh, he jumps up and begins walking towards the stage, only to learn that Rogers had met Frank Lloyd, who won for his film Cavalcade, which also took Best Picture. However, uh, Frank Capra would make history the next year at the 1934 Academy Awards, as his film It Happened One Night became the first to sweep the Oscars in, I would say, the, the top five categories that we all care about, uh, winning Best Actor for Clark Gable, Best Actress for Claudette Colbert, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Picture, and Best Director. And so what happened one night, very, very charming uh, picture, that that was the first to win uh, the top five. That year also saw one of the first uh, writing campaigns for the Oscars, and it wasn't for Rinton Tin, unfortunately. When Betty Davis didn't receive a nomination for what she felt was an Oscar-worthy performance in the film adaptation of Somerset Maugham's novel of human bondage, and I tend to agree with uh, Betty Davis, it's an excellent film and she's excellent in it, she staged a massive campaign to get the Academy to permit a write-in of her name on the ballot. They eventually relented, but Davis still did not win. The following year, another write-in campaign was once again staged, this time for director of photography Hal Moore for his cinematography on A Midsummer's Night's Dream. Moore walked away with the Oscar, and it continues to be the only successful write-in campaign in Academy Award history. Now, with the 8th Academy Awards held in 1936, the Oscars became the site of a significant labor relations debate. This year... The directors, actors, and writers' guilds staged a massive boycott of the Oscars because, unsurprisingly, the Academy, which had been founded because Louis Mayer and other studio heads wanted to stem the tide of unionization within the film industry and protect their studio interests, would not support the demands of the guilds. At this point in history, in 1936, actors, particularly big-name stars, were often contracted to a studio for a particular length of time or number of films rather than a single movie. And this type of contract, uh, studio contract, uh, persisted well into uh, the 50s and even the early yeah. 60s. Yeah. Moreover, some contracts stipulated that the studio got first dibs on contract renewal. So what happens is that a studio when they find an actor who will bring audiences to the theaters, could prevent that actor from leaving and going to work for another studio. 
In protest against these and other labor practices, many of which were the result of the studios attempting to stay solvent during the Great Depression, the guild boycotted the Oscars and many guild members resigned their membership in the Academy. This mass exodus meant that membership numbers plummeted. So, desperate to salvage the Academy and the Oscars, Frank Capra, who was now Academy president, took drastic measures, the most lasting of which was to get rid of the entire nomination and voting process of any taint of rigging or ballot stuffing and hire out the tabulation of the award ballots to an external accounting firm, Price Waterhouse, which still tabulates the votes to this day and which became the butt of many jokes on the part of Bob Hope as when he was hosting. <laughs> the guilds did eventually win in their fight against the studios several years later, but the damage was done and the Academy's Labor Negotiation Forum status was bunk. So even though the Academy had now outsourced the ballot tabulation, there were still a few issues that needed to be ironed out, which brings us to the issue of voting procedures. Now, as we said, originally the right to nominate people for an award and cast a vote in the final ballot of nominees was open only to Academy members, uh, save for the first two years. And again in 1936, when Frank Capra appoints a nominating committee to come up with a candidate list, which is then passed on to the full membership of the Academy for the final ballot. And this is because the 1936 year is is, uh, problematic because they're in the middle of all these uh, labor relations disputes. Some critics have suggested that this is why, for the first several years of the Oscars, mostly Academy members won the Academy Award. Becoming an Academy member is, even today, still a tricky process, and actually quite difficult. And you basically have two routes open to you. Either you get sponsored to join by someone who is already a member, uh, provided you've participated in enough movies of a high enough caliber to meet the Academy's very vaguely and subjectively defined criteria for your respective branch, or you get nominated for an Academy Award, which means you are automatically invited to join the Academy. After the formation of the Screen Actors, Directors, and Writers Guilds and the disproportionately large Screen Extras Guild and their respective boycotts of the 1935 Oscars, the Academy opened up the balloting to the guilds as well. However, this massively backfired at the 1943 Oscars. That year, 20th Century Fox had made a hugely critically acclaimed film, The Song of Bernadette, which was about the life of St. Bernadette Soubirou, a 19th century Catholic mystic from Lourdes, France. However, the film had a very small release, only showing at theaters in New York and L.A. Now, while these two cities were, and still are, the heart of the motion picture industry in the United States, and again, a movie has to open in Los Angeles in order to qualify for an Oscar, The Song of Bernadette was not widely viewed. Consequently, even though it was the more lauded film, and it did win Best Actress for its lead, Jennifer Jones, it lost Best Picture to the much more popular Casablanca. Because the massive size of the Screen Extras Guild had likely tipped the vote in that direction, the Guild was stripped of its voting privileges the following year, and several years later, uh, for the 1946 awards, the voting was restricted even more, as all the Guilds were shut out of the final balloting and were only allowed to make nominations within the respective categories. And uh, the 1940s, like the 20s and 30s, had their fair share of Oscar drama. As I mentioned previously, uh, at the 1939 Oscars, which was held in February 1940, Hattie McDaniel became the first African-American actor to be nominated for an Oscar, ultimately winning Best Supporting Actress for her performance as Mammy in Gone with the Wind. And she gave, in my opinion, a very emotional uh, speech. And uh, she, if you see old uh, 
um, old video footage of her speech, she runs off the stage in tears. So it's a, it's a very emotional moment. It is with the knowledge that this entire nation will stand and salute the presentation of this plaque that I present the Academy Award for the best performance of an actress in supporting roles during 1939 to Hattie McDaniel. Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Science, fellow members of the motion picture industry and honored guests. This is one of the happiest moments of my life. And I want to thank each one of you who had a part in selecting me for one of the awards. For your kindness, it has made me feel very, very humble. And I shall always hold it as a beacon for anything that I may be able to do in the future. I sincerely hope I shall always be a credit to my race and to the motion picture industry. My heart is too full to tell you just how I feel. And may I say thank you and God bless you. So as you can see from, from uh, the clip uh, we just played, she even comments on being a, a credit to her race. So she, in a sense, has an idea of her place in history and her sense of, of importance as far as uh, knocking down doors for other actors of color. However, um, for Hattie McDaniel... <laughs> For many actors after her, this was still a segregated America, and she and her date for the evening were forced to sit at a separate table for two. Actually, when Gone with the Wind premiered in the South, or had its Southern premiere, she was not even invited to the premiere. Uh, she was invited to other premieres that did not uh, that that didn't take place in the South, but she wasn't even uh, invited to her own right. premiere because of uh, the segregated nature of America at that time, the segregated South. The Academy was also impacted by America's entry into World War II following the bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. Beginning in 1942, the Academy showed its support for the war effort by handing out plaster statuettes instead of the gold-plated ones. And they used these plaster statues uh, for the duration of the war. After the end of the war, 1945, the Academy offered to provide a replacement statue for anyone who wanted one. And uh, and they and they still do that today. If you lose your Oscar, you can petition to to have, have a it, new one. Uh, have a new one, yeah. Incidentally, it is uh, a condition of accepting the Oscar that winners are not allowed to sell their statuettes without Academy permission. According to the official regulations, the winner must first offer the Academy the chance to buy the statue for the sum of one dollar, and then their firstborn. <laughs> I'm kidding about the first morning, but they do they do have to offer it up to the academy for one dollar, which means that you know if you if you win a statuette, there's no way that you can bequeath it to your heirs. Uh, you can bequeath it, but your heirs cannot sell it. Oh, okay, so you can pass it down to your descendants. Yes, you can okay, you can well, bequeath that's, that's it. Nice. But you can bequeath it, but you cannot um, you can't sell it. But you know this uh, selling it, uh, trying to sell the statue for the sum of a dollar. This has not uh, stopped a number of Oscar statuettes from coming up for auction. For example, in two thousand one, the Oscar Betty Davis won in nineteen thirty nine for the movie Jezebel was purchased by Steven Spielberg at a Christie's auction for five hundred and seventy eight thousand dollars, which is chump change to a major billionaire director like Spielberg. Always a friend to the Academy, uh, also previously bought Clark Gable's Oscar for $607,000. 
Despite spending nearly $1.2 million on them, he did not hold on to either statue, but gave both of these awards back to the Academy. The grand political gesture that Spielberg is known for. Uh, in 1945, speaking of drama, Joan Crawford was nominated for the movie Mildred Pierce. Uh, in true drama queen fashion, she was sure that she wasn't going to win, and I say sure in air quotes there. Uh, <clears throat> and so uh, she didn't show up for the Oscars, even though she had hired a PR agent, uh, Henry Rogers, to conduct an extensive Oscar campaign uh, on her behalf. But she, she's, you know, again, diva that she is, she's like, oh, no, I'm not going to win. And so uh, she had Henry Rogers tell everyone that she had like a, like a hundred degree fever and she was sick and she just, Miss Crawford just could not attend. Well, naturally, she won and Henry Rogers immediately springs into action. He calls her and is like, Joan, you won. Get the hairdresser ready. So she has a hairdresser and makeup artist come in, get her presentable, put her in this like beautiful nightgown array her out in her in her on her sick bed um uh with you know tea and whatever um and uh you know put her in this dressing gown uh and they wait for the photographers to show up um at her house in brentwood and henry rogers brings her brings her oscar to her and so there's this great image uh very iconic image of joan crawford clutching the oscar on her sick bed um even though she was perfectly fine and, you know, just, it was like, oh, I don't think I'm going to win. I mean, Mildred Pierce, she did an excellent job in that movie. She was wonderful in it. But uh, yeah, Joan Crawford was always a bit of a diva. I, I personally love uh, the Betty Davis-Joan Crawford feud. Uh, one of the best <laughs> bitchy Betty Davis quips about Joan Crawford was, uh, Joan Crawford has slept with everyone on the MGM lot, maybe except Lassie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is why, which is why, whatever <laughs> happened to Baby Jane is such a delicious movie. Yeah, um, it is. It really is. Just because the 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 sibling rivalry, you know, is is made that much more vicious by the rivalry between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Yeah, they, and they and they still hated each other even when they did that movie. They just had to kind of clench their teeth and get through the the process <laughs> there. <laughs> uh, the 1940s also saw what you might call the domestication or popularization of the Oscars. While the winners remained a secret until the day of the show, in the 1930s, the Academy had adopted the practice of pre-releasing the names of the winners to the press around the start of the ceremony. This was so that the East Coast papers would have time to make their evening filing deadlines for the following morning's papers. As a result, there were some actors who, by asking some pliable journalists or by just walking down to the press room, could find out whether or not they won before the actual ceremony, and in some cases, upon finding out that they didn't win, wouldn't even bother to show up. This was tolerated for quite some time until the LA Times published the list of winners in their evening edition of the paper on the day of the ceremony, and beginning in 1940, the Academy finally started enforcing the sealed envelope policy, which continues to this day. But for the most part, for the first decade and a half of its existence, the Academy Awards were a private affair. The newspapers might publish pictures from the ceremony, report on who was there and who won, but it was not a public event for most of the United States. That began to change in 1944, when ABC secured the rights to the first national radio broadcast of the Oscars. Now, this was not the first time that the Academy Awards were broadcast on radio. Local Los Angeles stations started intermittently broadcasting with the second Academy Awards, and eventually some West Coast networks began broadcasting the show. 
Part of the reason the ceremony was not broadcast on the East Coast was that the Oscars began much later than they do now. Most of the time, award presentation didn't get underway until after 10 p.m. Pacific time, by which time most of the rest of the country was in bed. With the advent of a national broadcast, the awards starting time got pushed back earlier and earlier, and the ceremony was brought into the privacy of any American home with a radio. This public participation in what would become the high mass of celebrity we know as the Oscars was firmly cemented nearly a decade later at the 1953 ceremony, when the Oscars were first broadcast on television. Although the Academy had been filming the awards themselves for years, uh, since at least 1940 because there's file footage of, of Hattie McDaniel, it took them a while to invite live television cameras into the ceremony, but as in all things, money paved the way. The Academy was desperately in need of funds to pay for the Oscars, and NBC agreed to kick in $100,000 for broadcast rights. It proved to be enormously successful for the network and a PR dream for the Academy, and it was the most watched program that year. Incidentally, from 1953 to 1957, these televised Oscars were actually held simultaneously in two locations at theaters in LA and New York. This is because a large percentage of stars were performing on Broadway at the time, and so were not free to make the flight to LA for the ceremony. I, I would also add, I think part of the significance of having a televised, a national televised uh, ceremony is that it actually brought movie stars into American living rooms mm. because before you know you would have to go and you would have to go buy tickets and you know go watch Ingrid Bergman on the screen you have to watch Humphrey Bogart you have to you know watch and you watch them within stars. the context of it you watch them within the context of an art piece um, yeah. rather than seeing them sort of candidly but here you there there are actual celebrities big movie stars coming right into your living room so you would have to imagine that that is kind of a, a big change in uh, the way that uh, Americans began to see movie stars, it creates an affinity between the public and the the public and the individual. Yeah, and it, and it certainly, I mean, it's it's that's obviously not the only thing, but it kind of uh, adds to the kind of cult of celebrity mm -hmm. <laughs> a bit uh, that we see developing um, at that time. And you know, we also begin to see paparazzi, you know, especially in the in the early '60s. I mean, that's that's all kind of coming around at the, around the same time. But, you know, let's go back a little bit uh, to the late 40s and into the 50s. Uh, the Academy once again faced a series of challenges in the form of the Red Scare and uh, the Cold War. And this is kind of an ugly side of the Academy that we can't really ignore here. So even before the outbreak of World War II, charges of collusion with communists or of being communists had been leveled at the American film industry and as early as 1936, these associations were the subjects of investigations by the House Committee on Un-American Activities, or HUAC. Tensions mounted further when, beginning in 1947, Congress subpoenaed screenwriters and directors suspected of communism to testify before them as to whether they were communist sympathizers. And those who did not uh, were found in contempt of Congress and subsequently blacklisted from working on Hollywood films. Um, and I know, uh, I know that Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall uh, were two very outspoken uh, actors against uh, the, uh, right. the HUAC. Uh, the taint of communism was a hard one to shake, even when falsely accused, and many writers, directors, and actors were subsequently blacklisted and forced out of the industry. 
Some screenwriters uh, were still able to make a living by using uh, pseudonyms such as uh, Dalton Trumbo, and a few of these scripts even won uh, Academy Awards, uh, but they were barred from having their name appear in the film credits. Uh, even this possibility uh, was short-lived, and in 1957, the Academy officially decreed that anyone who had publicly disclosed their communist sympathies or who had even refused to testify before Congress would be barred from receiving an Academy Award. This immediately affected at least one film, Friendly Persuasion, whose writer, Michael Wilson, had been blacklisted in 1951 for refusing to testify before the House Committee on Un-American Activities. When the list of Oscar nominees was published, Friendly Persuasion received a nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay, but his name was left off the ballot. Only the movie title appeared, followed by a note that read, Achievement Nominated but Writer Ineligible for Award Under Academy Bylaws. Wilson would actually win the Ad Adapted Screenplay Award the next year for his script for Bridge on the River Kwai, which he wrote with fellow blacklisted writer Carl Foreman. However, their names never appeared on the screen, and Oscar was instead given to Pierre Boulle, the French author of the novel upon which the movie was based. But a recent honorary Oscar went to the director, Elia Kazan, and Elia Kazan was a very controversial pick uh, for the honorary Oscar about uh, uh, 10 years ago or so. Uh, I'm not, I, I don't quite remember the year, uh, because he was uh, one of these uh, Hollywood people who informed uh, on other people. And so when he was, uh, when he was awarded uh, the honorary Oscar, there are people uh, who stood up and clapped, like uh, the perennial cheerleader Spielberg, who doesn't want to cause any controversy. And there are people who firmly sat on their hands when he went up and accepted uh, this honorary Oscar. So that was, that was actually a, a very interesting point of controversy that happened fairly recently. But as far as the ceremony itself, television is really what gelled the Oscars as an entertainment event rather than just an award ceremony. The Academy had already started moving in this direction within a few years of creating the Oscars when they moved from having the Academy president act as host and presenter to bringing in a professional entertainer like Bob Hope or a Will Rogers. Hope actually holds the record for hosting the Academy Awards, having solo hosted the ceremony 12 times and co-hosted seven times between 1940 and 1978. Because it was televised live, the Oscars also offered a convenient platform for actors and directors to make public political statements. I think perhaps the most uh, famous example of political controversy came in 1973 when Marlon Brandel, long disillusioned with, uh, with Hollywood and known for being uh, a rather misanthropic where the industry was concerned, had a young woman named Sachin Littlefeather, who had been born Maria Cruz and was actually an aspiring actress. Uh, she made a speech in his place at the ceremony when he won Best Actor for his role in The Godfather. Hello, my name is Sachin Littlefeather. I'm Apache and I'm president of the National Native American Affirmative Image Committee. I'm representing Marlon Brando this evening and he has asked me to tell you in a very long speech, which I cannot share with you presently because of time, but I will be glad to share with the press afterwards that he very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry 
Excuse me. And on television, in movie reruns, and also with recent happenings at Wounded Knee. I beg at this time that I have not intruded upon this evening and that we will, in the future, our hearts and our understandings will meet with love and generosity. Thank you on behalf of Marlon Brando. Uh, the event, as you can see, caused quite the stir in Hollywood and in the general public. A very similar scene was played out a few years later in 1975 when the anti-Vietnam documentary Hearts and Minds won that category and its director and producer Peter Davis and Bert Schneider read a note from the Viet Cong as part of their acceptance speech. And I would even add uh, a more recent uh, controversy was Michael Moore winning the documentary for Bowling of Columbine and loudly protesting the Iraq War when the mm. Iraq War was at its beginning stages and actually quite popular with the American public. And a lot of people were were very disappointed or upset that Brando used his Oscar speech as a, a political sort of tool. A lot of people were surprised when Jane Fonda, whenever she won, uh, didn't use her speech as a tool for um her very public anti-Vietnam yeah. War yeah. Um, uh, stance, her her activism, yeah. Um, but this is still a thing now, is that the Academy is very skittish whenever someone who has a very strong public opinion, uh, or particularly something that's controversial, gets up to make their acceptance speech because they're afraid that they're going to use this public stage as a, as a platform to, you know, sort of rant against the policies of the government or whatever. Um, but these controversial political speeches aside, the Oscars in the 70s and 80s became all about spectacle, about seeing and being seen, about the cult of celebrity attached to acting in American culture. And of course, it was about entertainment. And so choreographed song and dance numbers abounded, as well as the introduction of host teams made up of both dramatic and comedic actors. By the 1990s, the host would almost always be a comedian or a comic actor with repeated hosting by Billy Crystal and Whoopi Goldberg, and then one rather infamous time by David Letterman. Uh, after a ratings decline in the mid-80s, the 1989 telecast of the 61st Academy Awards, produced by Alan Carr, who had uh, also produced Grease and Grease 2, <laughs> best sequel ever. <laughs> or not, uh, pulled out all the stops where entertainment was concerned. This telecast was firmly in the realm of camp and bordered on the surreal, as it featured huge song and dance numbers, including a bizarre duet of Snow White and Rob Lowe singing Proud Mary, and an eight-minute original number called I Wanna Be an Oscar Winner. The song was supposed to showcase the up-and-coming talent in Hollywood, uh, despite the fact that it was introduced by Bob Hope and Lucille Ball, including Christian Slater, Corey Feldman, Jolie Fisher, uh, Tracy Nelson, Patrick Dempsey, and Blair Underwood. Gee, but it's great to be an Oscar winner! A super trooper, super duper Oscar winner! I am most humbly impressed. The Academy has voted me the very best. Now that I'm finally a statuetter, forgive me if I wear a silly smile. I studied you best. It took lots of sweat. But now I know the work I did was really worthwhile. An Oscar winner, an Oscar winner. Now watch the agents treating me right. No suits and all. 
As you might be able to tell from this clip, it is painful and hilarious to watch because it is far more Mickey Mouse Club than Academy Award. Needless to say, Alan Carr was not asked to produce the Oscars again, but his mark still lives on in the big production numbers, like whenever Hugh Jackman hosted a few years ago, and uh, I think also in uh, whenever Seth MacFarlane hosted uh, last year in the uh, Charlize Theron, th the really bizarre uh, Charlize Theron Channing Tatum dance. Comparatively, very little has changed in terms of uh, the format and the structure of the Academy Awards in the last two decades. Uh, save for the introduction of a new category, uh, one of my favorite categories, uh, Best Animated Feature, which was inducted into the uh, 2001 Awards, which was uh, won by, by Shrek. But the very next year, Hayao Miyazaki Spirited Away won uh, Best Animated Feature, which made me very happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Best Animated Short Film has been a category since the 1931-32 Oscars. And for the first eight years, Walt Disney Studios dominated this category. At the 1938 Oscars, Walt Disney won a special honorary award for Snow White, which is the first full-length animated feature from Disney Studios. And it is, of course, a masterpiece, a classic masterpiece. Academy rules stipulate 40 minutes as the minimum length for a film to be considered a feature or full-length work. Disney would win again at the 1991 Oscars when Beauty and the Beast became the first animated film to be nominated for Best Picture, as well as receiving nominations for Best Song and Score, both of which it won, and Best Sound. Then, in 1996, Toy Story was awarded a Special Achievement Oscar for being the first feature-length computer animated film. But Best Animated Feature Films did not become a regular category until after the turn of the century. The introduction of animated features as a category marked only the third time in nearly 40 years that the Academy had initiated a new category for the Oscars. Most of the core wars still present today were established in the first decade of the Oscars. Lead actor, lead actress, director, cinematography, production design, picture, editing, sound, writing, live action short film, score, song, and visual effects. Documentary, both short and long form, costume design, original screenplay, and foreign language film were all introduced in the 1940s, while sound editing got its own separate category at the 1963 awards. And despite receiving special achievement awards in 1964 for The Seven Faces of Dr. Lau and 1968 for Planet of the Apes, makeup and hairstyling did not get their own Oscar until 1981, and it was after years and years of the makeup and hairstyling uh, people lobbying for their own categories. What is perhaps more interesting are the discontinued categories. For a few years in the 30s, the Academy gave out Assistant Director and Dance Direction Awards, as well as several subcategories of short film. In 1956, the category of original story was subsumed into original screenplay, and the spate of musical movie adaptations of the 1960s meant the creation of a short-lived Best Adapted Score category from 1962 to 1969. Finally, for four years, from 1995 to 1998, so in living memory, the Academy strangely decided to split off musical and comedy scores into their own category. And I also noticed uh, that change. I noticed it particularly when Rachel Portman won Best Comedic Score for uh, the Gwyneth Paltrow vehicle, Emma. The fact that music and dance numbers have had such short-lived success maybe says something about the way that movies have changed since the early days of the Academy. 
Live-action musicals with dance numbers are far more rare in today's market than they were, you know, 60, 70 years ago. And uh, they largely disappeared for most of the 80s and 90s. Of course, uh, the Disney Renaissance films of the 90s being a huge exception there. Um, and they, I guess, were revived a little bit with the uh, popularity of Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge in 2001. And then followed by, of course, Chicago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and now, of course, um, I, I mean, this has just been added to with, you know, like the television show Glee. But then you also, uh, I remember about, oh, what was it, like six, five, six years ago, maybe not that long. You got a spate, again, of dance movies, uh, trying to market dance as dance movies as a category to younger audiences. So you get like... Uh, Step up 3D. Um, <laughs> step up, step up to, I must step to up, the street, step up 3D. I'm a step up 3D <laughs> fan. Just like, you know, I'm not a sister act <laughs> fan i'm a six i'm a sister act two fan a sister act two yeah. fan <laughs> uh we should also note that in addition to these standard categories of achievement that are given out uh in the main oscars show the academy also has a number of other awards that it gives out every year the academy has a separate ceremony for scientific and technical achievement these awards are not voted on by the general membership, but rather by a committee within the Academy and recognize contributions to the technical side of movie production, regardless of whether those accomplishments fall within the given award year, and are handed out to everyone from camera manufacturers to software companies and engineers. Since 1981, the Academy has intermittently given out a separate special award for technological contributions, the Gordon Sawyer Award. He was a sound director given to individuals who have made a particular technological contribution to film. Over the years, the Academy has also instituted a number of special awards given for general service to the film industry. Following the unexpected death of MGM's head of production, Irving Falberg, uh, husband of Norma Shearer we mentioned earlier in the podcast, who died of pneumonia in 1936 at the age of 37, the Academy instituted a memorial award in his name, given to producers deemed to have created an exceptional body of work. You know what's interesting about that? Um, since we talked so much about Spielberg during this podcast, Spielberg actually won this incredibly prestigious award before he won Best Director. Really? Yes. In the 19... He won the... Uh, Did the he win it? Well, this is actually something I was wondering. This is a producer award. There are a bunch of directors who get it, but it's like, I think it's director-producer. Right, right, um, right. Spielberg got it before he got director, but it's supposed to be one of those, you know, culmination of... Uh, culmination end of your career well not end of your career but it's you know you have arrived whenever you get the Irving Thalberg Memorial Award uh, in 1957 the Academy created the Jean Herschel Humanitarian Award this award is named for a Danish actor who largely made his name doing radio plays and highly moralistic b-movies uh, often playing doctors who help the poor and downtrodden but this was a characteristic of Herschel in real life as well, and he was a key advocate of the Motion Picture Relief Fund, which was created to help out-of-work actors pay their medical bills and receive financial assistance. As the award's name suggests, it's given out to those in the industry who have undertaken significant humanitarian efforts, like the most recent recipient, Angelina Jolie, who was recognized this year for her work with refugee camps around the world. Although some of these special awards, as well as the Honorary or Lifetime Achievement Oscars, used to be handed out during the main Oscar ceremony, since 2009 they have been given out at a separate event called the Governor's Awards. Uh, and we were talking about this yesterday. This is probably because these are the 
these are the awards that used to make the Oscars go so long. Um, the ceremony uh, in 2002, when A Beautiful Mind won, uh, was the longest to date at like four and a half hours long because they handed out all three of these special named awards and then an honorary Oscar to Sidney Poitier. And, you know, you can't cut these people off whenever they make their speeches. They're not, you know, the 30 second speech that you can make as an Oscar winner or the minute speech you can make as an Oscar winner, you have to give them like three or four minutes to, you know. So was that the last year that they did all that? Because I do remember um, these awards when I was little uh, being given out during the awards ceremony. But um, I'm, yes, I'm, I'm now remembering that, yeah, they're, they're not given out anymore. Yeah, since 2009, uh, they just hold them at the, the, the Governor's Awards. The Governor's Awards are not televised, but starting this year, the Academy has has actually uh, put footage on their YouTube channel uh, of the Governor's Awards. So this year, uh, Angelina Jolie got recognized with the Jean Herschel Award, um, and I know that uh, Angela Lansbury got like a Lifetime Achievement uh, Oscar as well. Um, uh, and they put... Uh, the other thing that they're able to do now that they, they sort of uh, shunt these awards off into their own sort of separate thing is that um, people can make longer introductory speeches. So there are a couple of introductory speeches that were made for like Angela Lansbury. One of them was made by Emma Thompson. Um, and people get up and, you know, get to say nice things about Angelina Jolie. And then she gets to get up and make a speech which is not, which is not constrained by time limits. Her speech is like, you know, four or five minutes long. Uh, we hope you've uh, enjoyed this brief-ish, not all that brief, look at the History of the Academy Awards. Uh, stay tuned, because this is just the first of a new series uh, we're starting on the history of film. Uh, I know uh, coming up, I'm going to be talking about uh, the early history of film as a medium and the creation of Hollywood as an entity. And then also, uh, I'll be doing an episode on the Hayes Production Code, an episode on the history of B-movies, and one on uh, French New Wave cinema. That's very exciting, Nathan. I am uh, still deciding on my topic, so I'll leave you to it. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we hope you've enjoyed this and uh, enjoy this year's Academy Awards, everybody. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.